1: I'm joined by Eric Peters from EricPetersAutos.com as we take another uh, take another little discussion of uh, what it's like to live and adjust to living in clown world. Eric, how are you today?
2: <laughs> I'm good. I'm getting ready to uh, take a drink from the creek rather than the toilet.
1: Okay, that's going to need some explanation here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, as you probably know, today's election day in Virginia. We're going to elect a replacement for the Coon Man. And the choice isn't particularly palatable. We've got the rhino Republican Glenn Youngkin. But on the other hand, we've got the Clinton apparatchik Terry McAuliffe. And so I liken that to drinking out of the dirty creek versus drinking out of the toilet. Uh, And that's what I'm going to go do after we get off the air. Yeah. So, uh,
1: okay. first of all, I congratulate you for not falling into the trap that, uh, oh, yeah, one of these people is definitely, you know, there to save you. But uh, what is the atmosphere right now? What's it like in in Virginia? Is this is this uh, very divisive race or is it just business as usual?
2: Well, it's definitely divisive, but what's interesting is that Youngkin had previously been considered to have absolutely no chance of uh, replacing the Coon Man. McAuliffe was considered a shoe in Now, apparently, according to all the metrics and all the polls, it's a very close race, and it's actually possible, apparently, that Youngkin could pull it off, uh, which would be nothing shy of a miracle, and I think it's because uh, of the fact that that the authoritarian woke left has become so out of control, so cognitively dissonant that they don't even realize how insane they sound, even to moderate Democrats. There was a big kerfluffle up in Loudoun County, which is a big county up in Northern Virginia, um, over this transgender stuff. The the school board there had imposed a policy whereby confused boys could go into the girls' bathroom. Well, one of these confused boys ended up raping not one, but two actual girls in the bathroom. And the school board attempted to cover that up. And that story broke, and uh, it ties to McAuliffe because he had gone on record previously saying that parents should have absolutely no role in determining what goes on in the schools where their kids are being so-called taught. And that didn't play well, even among people in northern Virginia, because even if you're a Democrat, it doesn't mean you're insane. And there are a lot of people up there who are very troubled by the idea of their teenage daughters having to go to the bathroom uh, with teenage boys who identify as girls, that's just one issue, but there several others like it uh, that have, I think, uh, made this race much tighter than it was just a couple of months ago.
1: It's interesting you mentioned, you know, how how the woke have have become a caricature of themselves. And the mm-hmm. question that pops into my mind is: At what point will will people, if there, if there are still such a thing as normal people left, will they stand up and say, you know what, this is too far? Because we've been pushed to limits that I never would have believed possible.
2: Well, I think that's just it. And and what I mean by that is that this is not a mass movement. This woke leftist thing is a minority movement. Just as in Russia, uh, the hardcore communists who appropriated the title of Bolshevik, which in Russian means majority, when they were a minority – They were the loudest, the most belligerent, and they shouted down the Mensheviks, who were the actual majority, the generally reasonable Russians, or at least not insane Russians. And I think that's the same phenomenon here. And I think that reasonable people who generally just don't want a conflict, aren't looking for trouble, have kowtowed to this. And it's not just the school stuff. It's the face diapering. It's the vaccination. It's all this stuff. And I think our patience has finally worn thin, and we've had enough of it. And I, I see a big pushback happening. At least I hope so. And I guess we're going to find out today, because the race in Virginia is really going to be a barometer of the political uh, mood and sense of the country.
1: Okay, so I want to ask you a pretty loaded question, Eric. Mm -hmm. How much difference does voting actually make, in your
2: opinion? Well, it depends on the race, and it depends on whether it is a national election, a, a senatorial election, A congressional election or a local election. Local elections can make a very big difference indeed. You can have a lot of influence over what goes on in your town, for example, or at least a whole lot more influence just by dint of the fact that in a small town election you may only have a few thousand people voting, and then your vote might really be all the difference, as opposed to one vote out of hundreds of thousands or millions in a national level election. Uh, It's a difficult issue for people like me who are libertarians and who dislike this whole thing about people's rights being up for a vote. You know, there's an argument that you shouldn't vote at all given that, you know, given that the the whole thing is, as H.L. Mencken put it, a kind of advance auction of stolen goods and of rights. However, I think you can make a pretty persuasive case that it's okay to vote to protect rights. And if the person that you vote for, if, you know, voting for him to protect rights, ends up doing something contrary to that, that's on him. It's not on you. You're, you're attempting to protect rights, not just your own, but those of other people. I think that's a valid argument. And it's um, it's a rearguard fighting action, too, if you will, to preserve what we can of civilization and then rebuild it. You know, we can't rebuild civilization as well if it gets destroyed first. I'm hoping that we can avoid that.
1: No, that, that makes sense. Um, I saw a distinction the other day that was so good. I want to share this one with you. This was from Anthony Davies from the Words and Numbers podcast. Mm-hmm. And he said the market is people doing things with one another, whereas uh, the government or governance is people doing things to one another. I yes. thought that was a pretty cool distinction.
2: It's absolutely apt. You know, uh, the the core tenet of libertarianism is voluntary association, free markets, free exchange, meaning people interact with one another peacefully. You know, they exchange value for value. They have discussions. They don't fight. If they disagree, they agree to disagree, and they, they part ways and do their own things. It's, it's a fundamentally humane way to organize life, and the interesting thing is, Uh, it's, it's often characterized as, as naive and, 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 uh, um, uh, utopian, but it's not because if you think about it in everyday life, just our ordinary transactions, it's very much that, you know, there aren't any rules per se, governing how we talk to our friends and how we deal with our families and, and all of these other personal and intimate things that we do kind of freestyle, you know, based on, on voluntarism, you know, you don't, your friends aren't forced to interact with you. They choose to interact with you and vice versa. And for the most part, it's the same with our families. And that sort of thing can certainly scale. And I think it's infinitely preferable to this, this top-down pyramid where people at the apex simply decree and tell everybody else what they're going to do and what they're not going to do.
1: Right. And and I don't know, maybe I'm just jaded, but I don't think I'm alone in this. Politicians are so um, comfortable with lying to the public uh, and and. That To me, that, that's enough to make me want to run screaming in the other direction. I'd rather deal with used sure. car salesmen all day long than deal with <laughs> politicians.
2: Well, they have to lie because the whole thing is a fundamentally dishonest business, isn't it? At least the way it's structured right now. Because, again, we're getting back to this problem of people's goods and rights being up for a vote. It's an insane concept when you think about it, that you can just walk into this, this building and pull a lever and have your neighbor... Uh, divested of his property, his money taken away from him, his rights taken away from him. It's it's also a way to evade the the moral culpability for what you do. Uh, most of us who aren't psychopaths would not march over to our neighbor's house with a gun on our hip and say, you owe me XYZ and you know, threaten to harm them if they refuse to open up their purse or wallet and give you money. But these same people who aren't necessarily bad people will vote to have that done by proxy and they won't feel bad about it. It's a striking thing.
1: Wow. Well, I give you extra points for, uh, for bringing up Mencken. And I encourage anybody who hasn't read H.L. Mencken probably should get a little dose of him if they just want to reconnect with reality. That guy had a gift.
2: He did. Uh, he was brilliant at dissecting the fatuities of American political, political life. And his notes on democracy is arguably his best work on that. And if, if people listening to this haven't read it, I recommend that they do.
1: So I'm I'm not terribly familiar with with his life, but um, can you tell me was was Mencken celebrated as a, a voice of reason in his time, or was uh, was he uh, kind of marginalized by the people of his day?
2: Well, both. He was one of the preeminent journalists of his time, the 1920s and 30s, chiefly, and he was extraordinarily popular for a long time. But then along came the Great Depression and Franklin Roosevelt. And uh, he was largely shut up and and put into pariah status as a result of that. He actually feared being persecuted, literally politically, um, for some of his views and some of his criticisms of FDR and the New Deal. So he sort of uh, faded away uh, off the stage. But uh, his fame has never entirely extinguished, much like other people of a piece with him philosophically, such as Henry David Thoreau and Lysander Spooner and there are a number of others like that who are fairly well known to this day, and the knowledge of them uh, is increasing because what they had to say transcends their time and applies to our time as much as theirs.
1: Boy, that sounds like a classic definition of wisdom. Mm -hmm. It doesn't become obsolete just because the times change. It remains true in pretty much any time and place.
2: Yeah, what I learned from Mencken, and I began reading him as a very young man back in high school, was to be very precise with words and to not let, uh, if, you're in an, if you're in an argument with somebody, an ideological opponent, to not let them get away with defining words in a way that is disadvantage, uh, disadvantageous to you, to make it clear what is being talked about. So, for example, people will euphemize things. You know, they'll talk about contributions, to social security that's not a contribution that's a right. tax and you're being compelled to, you're being compelled to pay it you know that sort of thing that's what i learned from Mencken.
1: okay hold that thought we're going to come mm-hmm. back we're talking with eric peters from EPautos.com. there is a link in the show notes if you'd like to visit his site we'll be right back
0: this is the brian hyde show This is the Brian Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com
1: is my guest. I like to uh, talk to Eric each week just because Eric, you're you're kind of uh, you're one of my last connections, my lifeline to uh, reality uh, because because of your <laughs> I, I take on not. stuff.
2: <laughs> I hope you got more than just me.
1: Well, let's just say you're one of the primary lifelines, and this is why I wanted to ask you about the the phenomenon that is sweeping the nation right now—the chanting mm-hmm. at major sporting events um, that uh, we'll just call it "Let's Go, Brandon." Yes, it seems to be catching on. What's your take on this?
2: Well, it's wonderful. You know, it is a it is a it is a, a very American way to uh, to show contempt for authoritarian politicians. It refers to Biden, of course. And uh, for those who are not aware of its genesis, what happened was there was a NASCAR race and it was won by a driver named Brandon something or other. I can't remember the guy's name. And he was being interviewed afterward by, I think it was an MSNBC journalist. And in the background, you could hear the deafening chant of the entire crowd that had assembled to watch the race saying, you know, basically F Joe Biden. And this reporter deliberately tried to uh, to claim that they were they were instead chanting "Let's go, Brandon!" You know, to cheer the driver, and the, the, the driver didn't say anything, but you could tell he thought it was as ridiculous as the as, as the rest of the people viewing. And it since has taken off, and it has become a wonderful way to, without using profanity, express your contempt for the current regime.
1: Well, let's let's talk for a minute about uh, about the essential role that mockery can play in resisting authoritarianism or just outright tyranny.
2: Well, sure. If you can make authoritarian appear ridiculous, it loses its power. If you can point out its fatuities and and just laugh at it, it's very hard to maintain tyranny when it's the the butt of of a joke. And that is why these authoritarians react so violently to anything that appears to make them look ridiculous. They can't stand it. And that is why the woke left is absolutely apoplectic about this Let's Go Brandon thing, because it is helping to delegitimize the current regime. They're they're freaking out over it.
1: Well, I I love the power of laughter, but I especially love the power of laughter to to put the oh-so-important in their place.
2: Well, me too. And what's interesting about this is that you know this is this is a funny thing. Let's go, Brandon. I mean, come on. That's you know that's not a that's not an injunction to commit violence. That's not a threat. It's simply an expression of contempt, right? Mm-hmm. These same mm-hmm. people who are in outrage over people expressing contempt for Biden and the regime are the same ones who are doing things like show, uh, showing severed pumpkin heads of Donald Trump and holding knives and doing things that were really close to the line of advocating actual violence at at people who supported trump or who didn't support the left these same people now somehow are perfectly okay uh... you know with advocating that those who say let's go brandon are somehow insurrectionists and dangerous and they need to be shut down and it just makes the left look even more ridiculous in many people's eyes than it already looks which is Pretty ridiculous.
1: Well, in my experience too, the people who react most violently or negatively to mocking are people who know at some level they deserve to be mocked.
2: Sure, you know if you can't have a self of, a sense of humor about yourself and your own foibles and failings, you really need to have a, a, a do a psychological inventory of yourself. Uh, if you view yourself as as a perfect avatar of absolute perfection. That uh, that cannot be criticized. You got a you got a defect. You got an issue, you know. And these people on the left uh, who can't stand anything that that isn't isn't def- a deference of, of extreme seriousness toward them because they're oh so important. Uh, it tells you that they're fragile. And ironically, these are the same people who accuse us of being oh uh, what's the term that they use? Uh, there's a term these I, I can't think of it. Uh, brittleness or, I, gosh, I wish I could pull it out of my head, fragility? but I can't. <laughs> yeah, it is, I think it is fragility. And, and they're the ones that are fragile. They're the ones who can't stand diversity in any meaningful sense. What they want is Easter egg diversity. They want, you know, different colors, let's say, uh, or different genitalia. But they want uniformity when it comes to what people think and what they believe. Everybody's got to be the same as long as they look slightly different, then it's okay.
1: Yeah, I, I can't imagine an existence where, where I'm so keyed up about what other people think that I cannot even allow myself to laugh or to smile.
2: Well, true, and it, me, me also. And the other thing that defines these people on the left is it's that they can't stand that other people... Are going to have different views and want to force other views on their views on these other people. You and I don't have a problem with difference of opinion because we're content to let other people express their own opinions. I haven't got a problem with that. I haven't got a problem with people wearing a mask if they want to wear a mask. That should be their choice. The same with the vaccine if they want to take it. That's fine. There's no conflict there. There should, doesn't need to be a conflict. But on the other side, on their side, there is a conflict because it's not enough for them to wear the mask or to get the jab. They expect us. They're going to try to force us to wear the mask and take the jab, and that's the nut of the problem.
1: Oh, what was the? I, I saw a. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Zuby, Z U B Y. Have you have you followed this guy,
2: this musician Zuby, on Twitter? No, I'm completely not hip. I hate to admit it.
1: Okay, the only reason I mention it is because this guy actually has a really solid take on a lot of stuff, and a tweet that he sent out recently. Uh, said something to the effect of, I feel like the past 20 months have largely consisted of people trying to convince me to be as afraid as they are, and them getting mad at me for refusing to be.
2: Exactly. He's so right. That is well said. That is apt. Exactly right. I mean, I I feel very bad. I feel compassion for people who are afraid. You know, I'd like for them to not feel afraid, but I refuse to feel afraid because somebody else is afraid. And uh, I certainly am not going to to behave in a manner that suggests that I'm afraid because some other person is afraid.
1: Right. Well, I, I appreciate uh, those who are, are willing to um, even suffer, you know, indignity and suffer injustice for the sake of, of uh, not giving in. Um, for instance, uh, I, know, I saw a picture yesterday of a very long line of New York City police officers lined up yeah. to fill out their paperwork because they will not mm-hmm. be reporting to work this morning. Uh, because they've been told, look, if you aren't vaccinated, mm-hmm. you know you can't work. So they're calling in yep. sick.
2: I watched uh, two videos, one of a doctor and one of a nurse, who were being escorted out of the hospital where they worked by armed guards because they had refused to um, provide proof of jab. Think about that. These people were willing to put their careers, their educations, everything they had put into that, on the line for the sake of a principle. More than that, actually, it's because they're, they're genuinely concerned about the physical harm that could come to them as well as to other people, which trumps any job at the end of the day. And I think that's why so many people are beginning to say, no, I will not do this. And, you know, it's, it is an important principle, but when your life potentially is on the line, potentially the life of your child, uh, no amount of money is worth that.
1: And you can't believe the amount of pressure, unless, unless you're one of those people in that position. You know, for, for those of us who aren't being pressured, you look, you either do this or you lose your job. There's also the enticement side. Uh, I've got a 15 year old or 16 year old son who uh, works part time for an FDA. Um, it's an FDA position, but, uh, they're telling him, you need to be jabbed by the 22nd of this month or mm-hmm. you can't work. Now they're telling him, hey, we'll pay you 500 bucks Now for a
2: 16-year-old, yeah. that's a pretty princely sum. Yes, it is. And consider, though, what that implies and how desperate they are. When somebody's trying to pay you to do something, that kind of sets off a red flag for me. It's, again, like this whole timeshare thing where they entice you with, oh, you know, you'll get to stay at this nice resort for free. <laughs> and there'll be a buffet dinner at the end of it, Right. There's something wrong with this picture. If something is desirable and, 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 and genuinely in the interest of the person that's being offered it, they'll look at it and say, yeah, you know what, that, that seems like a good deal to me. I think I'm, I'm, I'm on board. I'll, I'll, I'll go for that.
1: Well, I admire everybody who is standing firm. And Eric, you are one of those voices that I turn to for the reasons why I should stand firm, as well as an example of how to do it. Tell everybody where they can find your website and what to expect when they get there.
2: Sure. It's epautos.com. I like to call it the web's best libertarian gearhead site. And uh, we cover all sorts of eclectic things, including the stuff that you and I talk about, but also new cars, which I get to test drive and review regularly, motorcycles, classic cars, practically anything that you can think about, uh, we we talk about over at epautos.com.
1: Okay, some really intelligent conversation in the comments, too. Uh, that's something you don't find everywhere, so take advantage of it. Eric, thanks so much for being my guest.
2: As always, Brian, thank you.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, want to send some love in the direction of lifesavingfood.com? This is one of my great sponsors. I've got a lot of great sponsors, and if you look at the show notes, you'll find a little special section there with links to take you to each and every one of them. Love these guys, though, because, uh, well, let's just face it, uh, food storage is a great idea, especially food storage with a nice 25-year shelf life. It's not like, well, you know, I'm never going to eat food. At some point, I'm just going to be tired of eating. No, you're you're always, at least as long as you're processing oxygen, you're going to need sustenance. As you see prices of food going up at the grocery store, as you see breakdowns in the supply chain, I'm not trying to spread fear here, but I am trying to point out there's some uncertainty And things that we have taken for granted in the past. So, might be wise to have some of this on hand. The sooner you get started on a food storage program, or the the more consistent you are at building up and maintaining an existing food storage program, the better you're going to sleep at night. So, click on the link. See what life-saving food has to offer. Keep in mind, there are some delays because of the breakdowns in in, uh, shipping and in the supply chain. But uh, they'll get it to you as quick as possible. Prices are still Quite decent, I say that knock on wood compared to to where they seem to be heading. And of course, uh, again, it's it's about the peace of mind. It's it's you're preparing for life, not for the apocalypse. So here's a question for you: Have you ever heard the the phrase "unique patient identifier" before? I don't think I've ever heard that specific phrase, but I'm I'm always a little bit on edge whenever there's anything that approaches the idea that you know what would be great. If we could just make your identity something that government grants to you and, you know, that's how you uh, move through society. Having just flown in the last couple of weeks, this is kind of fresh on my mind because, you know, the, my wife found out the hard way when we moved. Uh, she, got her, she got her Idaho driver's license and apparently in Idaho, if you want the gold star, which is, signifies that you are part of the real ID, in other words, the approved driver's license, that's acceptable for the federal government, you have to ask for it. It's not just a given. It's funny. Living in Utah, Utah actually sent me my gold star driver's license. I didn't even have to ask for it. It just showed up in the mail. What the heck is this? Get rid of your old license and carry this one around. Okay, well, here we go. But have you ever thought about where that leads? When your identity is a government-granted privilege as opposed to an essential part of who you are, independent of what government says. I mean, it's kind of chilling, right? It's it's the logical extension of papers, please. you um, You aren't who you think you are unless the government agrees that you're who you say you are. Now combine that potential for authoritarianism with medicine. Ooh, this could be a real problem. And Dr. Ron Paul, or Representative Ron Paul, if you prefer has a great piece on lewrockwell.com, Resist the Unique Patient Identifier. Now, he doesn't waste any time throwing the cards on the table here. He says, look, if people who torture animals are psychopaths, then what are government officials who use taxpayer dollars to fund animal torture? He says, many, many are asking this question in the wake of the revelations of the, that the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, headed by Dr. Anthony Fauci, high priest of the COVID cult, funded medical, and this word is in, in quotation marks, research involving the torture of puppies. This led uh, Fire Fauci to trend on Twitter and People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals to call for his resignation. Now, the puppy torture story was followed by disclosures that the federal government funded the testing of experimental AIDS vaccines on orphans. Many of the orphans used as human guinea pigs subsequently died. And nurses who assisted in these experiments reported that many children got sick immediately after receiving the vaccines. So, testing dangerous drugs on orphans and torturing puppies in the name of science. Ron Paul says that's certainly shocking, but is it really surprising that government would fund these kinds of activities? What's the difference between using orphans and puppies for cruel experiments in the name of protecting public health versus killing innocent children in drone attacks in the name of stopping terrorism? Whew, he is swinging for the fences here. And connecting. Now, Ron Paul says, ironically, these revelations come when Congress is on the verge of allowing the federal bureaucracy to destroy what remains of our medical privacy. Both the Senate and House versions of the Labor Education and Health and Human Services Appropriations Bill remove the prohibition on the development of what is called a unique patient identifier. Now, Ron Paul says the prohibition on funding for the unique patient identifier, which I sponsored, this was a piece of his legislation, has been in place since 1998. It's the prohibition he sponsored. Just want to make that clear. What? He came up with this? No. He says, the push to allow the government to force every American to obtain a unique patient identifier is being justified as a means to efficiently monitor Americans' contact and immunization status. He says, when I began fighting the unique patient ID in the 1990s, my opponents denied that medical identifiers would make it impossible to ensure confidentiality of medical records. Now they're saying we should support medical identifiers because they allow government officials and employers, schools, airlines, even stores and restaurants to discover what, if any, vaccinations or other medical treatments we have or have not received. You can see where this is going, right? The result of the identifier will be a medical caste system where those who refuse to follow the mandates or the advice of experts are denied opportunities to work receive an education, or even go to church or enjoy a night out on the town. He says a unique patient identifier will weaken health care by making individuals reluctant to share personal information, such as drug and alcohol use and past sexual history with healthcare providers. It will also discourage sick individuals from seeking medical care for fear their physicians will discover they're unvaccinated, or they smoke, or they're overweight, or engage in other unapproved behaviors. Ron Paul says a unique medical ID could also be tied to government records of gun purchases. Someone with too many guns could be labeled a potential mental health risk and harassed by law enforcement. And he points out that's especially likely if the gun grabbers are successful in their push to enact red flag laws in every state. Now, here's the good news. He says, fortunately, there is a growing resistance to vaccines and other mandates. And this resistance is unlikely to passively accept a federally issued patient identifier. If those of us who know the truth take advantage of the opportunity presented by the resistance to COVID tyranny, he says we can not only stop the scheme to force every American to obtain a unique patient identifier, but end all government control of our health care. I've got a link to this in the show notes. I hope you'll take the time to read it for yourself. And, you know, I'm not telling you, boy, Ron Paul said it. and You better believe it, man. But this guy has a really consistent track record of being on the right side, as in the principled side of the, the contest between freedom and tyranny. And just so we don't lose sight of, you know, what's going on. That's really what the choice is in front of us. Will you choose freedom? Will you choose tyranny? We'll actually talk about this in in the next hour. It's a crazy time, isn't it? I saw something earlier today, too, that I thought was really fascinating. In fact, I want to see if I can pull this up because I want to get it word for word. Uh, This was uh, shared by Eric Moutsos. And I just was, I was blown away by how accurate this is. Let me just look here real quick. I just got to see where activity history. There we go. Oh, my goodness. Facebook, you don't make things very easy, do you? All right. Well, let me pull it up here. Eric Moutsos wrote uh, wrote a thing about how you can tell that uh, this is it. Has anyone noticed the majority of people fighting for their freedoms are openly and publicly trusting in God? But on the flip side, most of those bowing down against their conscience, their own conscience, are believing government will ultimately save them. And he says, such is a testimony where humanity's faith will finally rest. We can't have both when good and evil have finally been revealed. It's all a test. And he says, we must all decide where we stand, God or government. I know that's going to make some people feel uncomfortable, especially if you're you're agnostic or if you're an atheist or just simply someone who says, I don't know, I don't know. But for people of faith, I would submit to you, this is one of the key tests, and it's, it's not something you go out and, and, and take part in in you know, like a voting block. OK, do we all vote uh, we, we believe God will, you know, ultimately run this universe, or that you know we're going to hand that power over to some politician. This is a very individual thing. So I'm trying hard not to step on anybody's toes here, but I will say, Eric's right. And what he has observed here, I think, is absolutely correct. The people who seem to be fighting the hardest to preserve, not just their own freedom, but the freedom of every person, are relying upon faith in God. You know the crazy thing? I think historically this has always been the case, because I think historically all the battles that have ever been fought are still rooted in that ultimate battle that began in heaven.
0: Will you be free to choose or must you be forced? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Again, I want to throw a quick plug out there for my show notes. Every day, I sit down and I look for good, credible, hopefully principled information, by which I mean it's not rooted in red state versus blue state rhetoric. And that's what I share in my show notes. I put some personal annotations in there, but basically, I spend my time compiling the best information I can find that accurately reflects what's going on in the world, as well as empowers you and me to recognize what's happening and what we can do within our respective spheres of influence. It's also a handy-dandy feature for any uh, talk show hosts who don't feel like doing their own show prep. I publish it every single day at thebrianhydeshow.com. Here's something simple, though. If you don't have time, you know, for instance, if if you're listening to me, you know, on your way to and fro, or uh, you you don't have the kind of commute that would allow you to listen to this show in its entirety, not a problem. You can still read all the material. If you go to my website and subscribe, I will email my show notes out each day that I do my show. So it's just a little handy tool. You don't even have to agree with anything. You may just want to stay, you know, you may want to subscribe just so you can stay up on, well, you know, what's hide off on today. But I've got some pretty fascinating stuff. For instance, if the shipping crisis is on your mind, I found a very interesting piece by a veteran truck driver that provides some real insight into what's happening. Oh, sure. We could go to politicians and have them tell us what's happening, but I kind of want to hear from people who are actually in the trenches. I've long had the belief that if you want to if you get the truth, you got to be willing to go to the source. Ryan Johnson's been a truck driver for 20 years. He explains exactly why America's shipping crisis will not be ending anytime soon. He says, I have a simple question for every expert who thinks they understand the root causes of the shipping crisis. The question is, why is there only one crane for every 50 to 100 trucks at every port in America? And he says, no expert will answer this question. Now, Ryan says, I'm a class A truck driver with experience in every, nearly every aspect of freight. My experience in the trucking industry of 20 years tells me that nothing is going to change in the shipping industry. So let's start with some understanding of a few things about ports outside of dedicated port trucking companies. Most trucking companies won't touch shipping containers, and there's a reason for that. Think of going to the port as going to blackmart or to Walmart pff, hello on Black Friday but imagine only one cashier for thousands of customers. Think about the lines except at a port there are at least three lines in or three lines to get a container in or out so the first line is the in gate where hundreds of trucks daily have to pass through five to 10 available gates. The second line is where you're waiting to pick up your container. The third line is waiting to get out. Now, for each of these lines, the wait time is a minimum of an hour. In fact, he says, I've waited up to eight hours in the first line just to get into the port. And some ports are worse than others, but excessive wait times are not uncommon. He says, it's a rare day when a driver gets in and out in under two hours. And by rare day, he says, I mean maybe a handful of times a year. Ports don't even have enough workers to keep the, the, the ports fluid. And it doesn't matter where you are, whether it's coastal or inland port, union or non-union port, it's the same everywhere. Now, he says, furthermore, I'm fortunate enough to be a teamster, a union driver, an employee paid by the hour. Most port drivers are independent contractors leased onto a carrier who's paying them by the load. So whether their load, it takes two hours, 14 hours or three days to complete. They get paid the same. And they have to pay 90% of their truck operating expenses. The carrier may pay the other 10%, but usually less. He says the rates paid to non-union drivers for shipping container transport are usually extremely low. In a majority of cases, these drivers don't come close to my union wages. Plus, they pay for all their own repairs and fuel and all truck-related expenses. He says, I honestly don't understand how many of them can even afford to show up for work. There is no guarantee of any wage, not even minimum wage. And in many cases, these drivers make far below minimum wage. In some cases, they work 70-hour weeks and they still end up owing money to their carrier. Oh, boy. So when the coastal ports started getting clogged up last spring due to the impacts of COVID on business everywhere, drivers started refusing to show up and congestion got so bad that instead of being able to do three loads a day, they could only do one. They took a two-thirds pay cut, and most of these drivers were working 12 hours a day or more. And while carriers were charging increased pandemic shipping rates, none of those rate increases went to driver wages. Well, what do you think happened? Many drivers simply quit. However, while the pickup rate for containers severely decreased, they were still being offloaded from the boats, and it's only gotten worse. Earlier this summer, both BNSF and Union Pacific Railways shut down their container yards in the Chicago area for a week for inbound containers. Now, these are some of the busiest ports in the country. He says they had miles upon miles of stack, meaning container trains, waiting to get in to be unloaded. According to BNSF, containers were sitting in the port one third longer than usual, and they simply ran out of space to put them until some of the ones already on the ground had been picked up. Though they did reopen the area ports, they're still over capacity. Stack trains are still sitting, loaded, all over the country, waiting to get up into a port to unload. And they have to be unloaded. There's a finite number of rail cars, so equipment shortages are a large part of the problem. One of these critical shortages is what's called the container chassis. So the container chassis is the trailer that the container sits on. Cranes will load these in port... Chassis are typically container company provided, as trucking companies generally don't have their own chassis units. They're essential for container trucking. And while there are some privately owned chassis, there aren't enough of those to begin to address the backlog of containers today. So drivers are sitting around for hours, sometimes days, waiting for chassis. Now the impact of the container crisis now hitting residencies in proximity to uh, is now hitting residencies in proximity to trucking companies. Containers are being pulled out of the port and dropped anywhere the drivers can find because the trucking company lots are full. Ports are desperate to get containers out so they can unload the new containers coming in by boat. When this happens, there's no plan to deliver this freight yet. They're literally just making room for the next ship at the port. He says this won't last long as it just compounds the shortage of chassis. Ports will eventually find themselves unable to move containers out of the port until sitting containers are delivered, emptied, returned, or taken to a storage lot, whether loaded or empty, and taken off the chassis there so the chassis can be put back into use. The priority isn't delivery. The priority is just to clear the port enough so that they can unload the next boat. So what happens when a container does get to a warehouse? At least a large portion of international containers, must be hand-unloaded because the products aren't on pallets. That takes a working crew a considerable amount of time to do this, and warehouse work is usually low wage. A lot of it's only temporary staff. Many full-time warehouse workers got laid off when the pandemic started. They didn't come back. So warehouses, like everyone else, are chronically short-staffed. When the port trucker gets to the warehouse, they have to wait for a door. You've probably seen warehouse buildings with a bank of roll-up doors for trucks on one side of the building. The warehouses, meantime, are behind schedule. And he says sometimes by weeks. So after maybe a two-hour wait, the driver gets a door, drops the container, but now often has to pick up an empty and goes back to the port to wait in line all over again to drop off the empty. At the warehouse, the delivered freight is unloaded and it's usually separated and bound to pallets, then shipped out in much smaller quantities to final destination. A container that had a couple dozen pallets of goods on it will go out on multiple trailers to multiple different destinations a few pallets at a time. So he says, from personal experience, what used to take me 20 to 30 minutes to pick up at a warehouse can now take three to four hours. This slowdown is warehouse management related because very few warehouses are open 24 hours. And even if they are, many are so short-staffed, it doesn't make much difference because they're so far behind in schedule. It means that as a freight driver, I can't pick up as much freight in a day as I used to. And since I can't get as much freight on my truck, the whole supply chain is backed up. Freight simply isn't moving. So how do you convince truckers to work when their pay isn't guaranteed, even to the point where they are losing money? Now, there's a lot more to this article, and you can check it out for yourself in the show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com Again, this is Ryan Johnson in a piece published on medium.com. But he says, look, there's no incentive for, for trucking companies to change this, even if it means consumers have to do holiday shopping in July and pay triple for their shipping. This is the new normal. All brought to you by the experts, in quotation marks, running our supply chains. I thought that was an interesting take. And it definitely sheds some light on what's happening. Now, what's the solution? I don't know. But I think I'd start by talking to some of the people who are right there in the thick of things before I started turning to politicians and saying, hey, could you solve this for us? Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers.